So we're going to continue in Ezra and Nehemiah. I want to give you some context again, which I always do because I want to always remind you where we're at. Um, remember, this is one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. We have divided it into two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's originally just one. Um, and it's a book about the post-exilic period, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. Uh, and I want to pick up on the main themes, remind you what they are again. This is, I'm kind of relentless about this because when you study a book of the Bible, um, you need to not forget its context. So I want to talk about that in just a second. But, but as I get started, let me pray. Father, we are thankful for this morning. We're thankful that we have the privilege of gathering to hear your word. We know that you are good that you are the creator, um, that you are exceedingly kind to us. Um, we give thanks for the gift of Christ. We know that you've not only created us, but sustained us and that you have redeemed us in him. Uh, we're thankful that your mercies are new every morning, that today we have life and breath and the privilege of um, exhausting ourselves for the sake of your name. In whatever vocation you've given us, may we work as unto the Lord. Um, we pray that you would help us to be a people ever mindful of Christ with our eyes set on heaven, our heavenly rest with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I, I want to remind you, whenever you're reading a book, you want to look at its context. And what I mean by its context is a few things. Um, you're looking at a passage in a book, for example, Ezra 7 we'll look at today. We have to understand Ezra 7 is in a context of uh, chapter 7 is in the context of Ezra and Nehemiah, the whole book. So you want to, okay, the book. But then you have to ask the question, where does the book sit in the canon of Scripture? In other words, where does it function in the history of God's people and uh, what comes before it and what informs it? Then you also want to ask the question, how does it fit in the whole uh, unity of God's redemption? You know, of, of his, is it the unfolding redemption of God from Genesis through Revelation, where does it fall there? You don't want to just take texts and even books in isolation. If you do, you end up with this kind of odd sort of um, theological direction that you head. So guys say, um, what is the theology of Mark? Well, I, I guess it's an okay question, but, but then if you try to isolate Mark's theology as if it's somehow completely disconnected from the rest of the Bible, you start going down really odd paths, um, which is what you see liberal scholars doing. And I just want to be really careful, even as, as we walk through all of Scripture, that we're always putting every text in the context of the whole. We have one God who speaks with one voice, right, across the entire canon of Scripture. He isn't, he isn't uh, coming up with new things as he goes along in the sense of He's revealing new things, but, but everything's connected to that same story. Um, so I bring that up just because I'm constantly, relentlessly bringing you back to the primary themes. So today we're going to look at Ezra um, 7 through 10, but I want to bring you back to a couple of themes with regard to Ezra, um, as, as I've done. Um, if you remember, I said Ezra tells the, Ezra Nehemiah tells the story of the return from exile, okay? They're coming back from exile. It's the second to last book in the Hebrew canon, Ezra Nehemiah. I know for us it's, it's early because we've sort of rearranged the material, if you will. But um, it's the second to last book in the Hebrew canon, as, as if you will, as Jesus would have read it. Um, it would have been the second to last book. Sec Ezra Nehemiah, then Chronicles. Uh, it was the last book. And it's a book about their return from exile. If you remember, Israel goes into the land. They live there. They're wicked. They have wicked kings. And then eventually they are exiled. They're exiled for some time. And they're looking forward to a return. Um, their prophets are telling them they will return. You guys remember that? Um, the prophets are telling them they will return. And they're looking forward to that return. And that, that, that return is prophesied like a second exodus like a second exodus. Um, oh, that's clear in Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel as well. But 
it's prophesied in that way. We're going to leave this uh, foreign oppressor that we're under, and we're going to head back to the promised land, to that city, head up to that, if you will, to the mountain of God, and we're going to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city and dwell there with God in peace. So they're looking forward to that day. So they're going back to rebuild the temple, Ezra 1, and the city, Nehemiah 1, and to reform the people of God into being faithful to God's covenant law. Because remember, under the Mosaic covenant, they're supposed to be faithful to God's covenant law, um, but they are, they've not been faithful. So that's, that's where we're at in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We are, we are among a people going back to the land to rebuild the city that's in ruins, to rebuild the city, um, to the, rebuild the temple that's ru- in ruins. Um, and Ezra is very keen that the people are reformed. Uh, reformed in the sense that they've been disobedient, unbelieving, unfaithful. And so he wants to see that change. You guys getting that so far? Okay. Um, he's standing there as a scribe, a teacher of the law who wants that. Why does God, but this is one of the questions I want to ask, because we need to always put it in this context, because you're going to hear a continual refrain. Why does God keep putting his hand out graciously to this wicked people? They're going back to the land again. Um, They've been wicked, and yet God's going to be kind to them. Why does he keep putting out his hand to this wicked people? Yeah, his covenant faithfulness. And, and if, if we will, his covenant faithfulness is, gra- is grounded in what? In other words, when you say that, Jacob's saying he's made covenants and he's faithful to his covenants. And what is his faithfulness to his covenants grounded in? Himself. Himself, good. His own character, who he is. So he's a God who does not lie. Therefore, he cannot make um, covenants he's not going to keep, for example. He's also a God who if you will, listen, look at Jeremiah 31.3 as we start. I want to remind you of this because they're going back in the exile um, with the anticipation that they're coming under the new covenant, though it doesn't yet start, which is, we'll, we'll speak about more in Chronicles, but they're certainly anticipating it. Jeremiah 31.3, this gives you the grounding for the making of the new covenant. The Lord appeared to him, you know, the Lord, the Lord appeared uh, to him from far away. Now listen to what the Lord says. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So notice Jake, Jacob picked up the language of faithfulness, covenant faithfulness. That's right. And what grounds his covenant faithfulness? I have loved you with an everlasting love. Um, I've determined to do good to you all the way through scripture. Uh, go to Jeremiah 32. I'm gonna, I just want to show you this in the New Covenant as well because these, this, these words are, are going to ground some of the language that we see with Ezra, um, his understanding of the Lord. Just go down to verse 40 of 32. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will, not, I will not turn away from doing good to them. Now he's just said above, I will be good to them and to their children after them. By the way, new covenant promise, Jeremiah 32, 39. I will be good to them and to their children after them. Um, and then he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them, to them and their children and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I'll rejoice in doing them good. And I'll plant them in this land in, fa- in faithfulness with all my heart and, all my, and my soul. So I'm committed to their good. I'm going to do good to them. Because I love them. I'm committed to that. That language is going to come up, actually, in Ezra, particularly the section that we're in. Um, it it's going to inform, in fact, not only Ezra of why God is doing what he's doing, but it's going to inform Nehemiah. You'll see it come up in Nehemiah too as to why God's doing what he's doing. There are people returning to the land and their only explanation for why God would do that is 
I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I'll be faithful to you, to the covenant. I'm committed to doing you good. It's my joy to do good to you and to your children after you. Okay? Um, all right, so all the way through the Bible, that's the refrain. Right? That's the refrain. From the fall of man into sin all the way through. So let's look at Ezra in light of that. So go over to Ezra chapter 7. And if you remember, we talked about the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of the temple in chapters 1 through 6. In Ezra 1 through through 6, the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of the temple. Now in Ezra 7 through 10, we're going to talk about the return of Ezra. So the return of exiles and the rebuilding of the temple. Now the return of Ezra and rebuilding the temple. So look at Ezra chapter 7. Let me grab my glasses so I can actually read it. Um, Ezra 7, we'll look at the return of Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple. And this is what I want you to notice. You're going to see this language again and again and again. I'm grounding it in the covenant on purpose. God is unchanging. From, I, I just, you need to hear that. From the fall of man into sin, through the whole of the Bible, God keeps making the same promise. I'll be good to you and to your children after you. He does not change. He does not change. And this is going to be the, the basis for Ezra's understanding of what's happening to him and Israel. So look at Ezra 7. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, so now we're about 458 BC. We've probably fast-forwarded a good 40-plus years from the beginning of Ezra. If you go over to Ezra chapter 1, just briefly, so you get a history. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's in the 520s BC. Some guys try to locate the exact year. I think that's a little bit ambitious, but in the 520s BC. So now you're at 458 BC. So the people first return after the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia, and they begin to rebuild the temple, but they don't complete the project. Remember, there's all kinds of people trying to stop them. It gets, put to stop, it gets, it gets ceased for a while, etc. Now we're in 458 BC under Artaxerxes. So we've gone from Cyrus to Darius, now Artaxerxes. Um, now after this, the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sarah, Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merith, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, or Abishua, sorry, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. You guys see, he's going back to where with Ezra? Where is he driving you back to? The Exodus specifically Aaron, the chief priest. He's in this line. Ezra is. They want you to understand that. Um, he, he even mentions Phineas. You guys remember who Phineas is? The one who was jealous with godly jealousy and, and defends the temple of God as he's supposed to, right? Drives the spear through the two Israelites who are having sexual intercourse in front of the entrance to the tabernacle. And um, Phineas goes and does what a temple priest is supposed to do and and gives them the death penalty, ends it right there. Um, He's driving it back to these guys, all the way to Aaron and the Exodus. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled (coughs) in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for what? The hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. I want you to pay, pay attention to this. Everything that happens to Ezra that goes well is because of this phrase, where the hand of the Lord as God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests, and Levites, and singers, and gatekeepers, and temple servants. So th- these are all people who are coming up largely as what? What are these kinds of folks? What will, they, what will their role in Israel be? What's that? Taking care of the temple. Ta- taking care of the temple and what else? Well, yes, but look at the language there. What else are they doing? Yeah, they're leading worship in the temple, right? 
Okay? The purpose of the temple isn't just to have a pretty building, but to worship God there. And so those who are leading it are coming. And Ezra came to Jerusalem, verse 8, in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. Now notice what you hear again. What's the refrain? For the good hand of his God was on him. Okay, now I want to pay attention to that twice now. Verse 6, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 9, for the good hand of his God was on him. Um, again, God is committed to doing them good. Hey, Charles, can you turn on the air over here? You, is that possible? Or John, if you know how. Um, it's a little stuffy. The good hand of his God was upon him. This, this is the refrain you're going to see again and again and again. Now, you're going to know why the good hand of God is upon Ezra. Um, you're going to be given a reason for it. Why is God's good hand upon Ezra? Um, for Ezra, verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Okay, so I want to break that down and I want to break down two parts here of that so we can give it a little bit of thought. All right, so first one, um, we have this four, right, right? Why is God's good hand upon Ezra? For what? Okay, so then the question is, if this is explanatory, if that's explanatory, then, then um, what seems to ground what? You guys following me on this? Yeah, it seems like Ezra's behavior is meriting God's favor on him, right? Um, part of the reason that we tend to conclude those kinds of things is that we don't understand that there's more than one kind of condition. Um, so when we talk about conditions, we talk about antecedent conditions and consequent conditions. What do I mean by that? What's an antecedent condition? Something that precedes. Okay. It's, it's, it's a condition that comes, if you will, beforehand. Um, you have to do it. You have to meet this condition to get this. You guys follow me so far? Okay. You have to meet it to get something. We usually think of... Um, so, for example... I'll give you an antecedent condition of justification. Faith. Antecedent condition of justification. Now, even then, we're, we're going to distinguish kinds of conditions. Faith comes before justification, but it comes before justification. So this is where you're going to start to go, oh, this is, we've thought this way for centuries, by the way. I'm not making this up. Okay? Faith comes before justification, and that's because we bring all these texts together, right? But we're also told faith is a gift. You guys know that, Philippians 1.29, Ephesians 2.8.9, etc. So faith is a gift, comes before justification, but it's the gift of who? God. And so we say, okay, faith is an antecedent condition, it comes before, but, but faith is not an effectual condition. What would, be, what, an, what would an effectual condition be? What's that? Um, well, yes, but I'm asking not what the effectual condition is, but, but, but what do I mean when I say effectual? What do I mean by that word? Let me know. Okay, it's the thing that is essentially uh, makes the other thing happen, right? It's the power behind something, okay? So that um, we're not saying faith is the effectual condition of justification, Faith is not what itself, it does not in and of itself justify you. You guys follow me on that? We're saying faith is actually, uh, we're saying Christ, if you will, 
and his grace, or God, is the effectual condition. You guys, you guys follow me that? The effectual one. Okay, so what we're saying here is, we, you've heard this language from Protestants for some time, that faith is an instrumental condition. It's an instrumental condition, right? It's, it's um, I'll give you an example. Um, so Dan plays the drums. Dan plays the drums. When, when he plays that instrument, it makes a sound. It's an instrument, it makes a sound. Who is the effective one, the power behind the sound? The drums or Dan? Dan is, right? But the drums are, in fact, doing something. They're the instrumental cause, not the effectual cause, right? The effectual cause of the sound is Dan. The instrumental cause is the drums. You guys follow me on that? Okay. God is the effectual cause of your salvation, namely in the person of Christ and by the Spirit. Faith is the instrument that God essentially plays in you. Make sense? Okay, that's antecedent beforehand. What is a consequent condition? What's a consequent condition? It's, it's something that's going to come after. It's a consequence of something else. It follows something else. So, um, good works. Good works are something, if you will, that, that follow. Um, I'll give you an example of that. You are, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Simple enough? Okay. It's something that is a consequence of something else, consequent condition. When it says that, this word for, the good hand of his God was on him, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Is that an antecedent condition or a consequent condition? It's really a consequent condition. How do we know that? In other words, it doesn't tell us here in this text whether it's consequent or antecedent, right? But we know it's a consequence of God's grace on him. How? How do we know that? You can use your whole Bible for this answer. That's why I said books have to be put in their context, right? Scripture interprets Scripture. How do we know that it's a consequent condition? Well, actually, that, that comes before in the text, but, but it's not stated as, it's state, it, the way it's stated is that Ezra's, Ezra's conditioning the good hand of his God upon him, and I'm saying it's a consequent condition. Where do we find, though, that it's a consequent condition? Where would I find that from? How do I know your good works, your good heart? In other words, if you're believing and godly and obedient, how do I know that's a consequence of God's work in you? You guys have a whole Bible to choose from. Any answers? The New Testament allows? Yeah, uh, the whole Bible. <laughs> it's all one book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, well, First John is going to establish here's a pattern of a true believer, right? For sure. Um, but guys, if you go all the way back through the whole of Scripture and into the New Covenant as it progressively unfolds, you're told again and again and again, you're wicked, you're fallen, you're sinful, you're dead. So let's take just Ephesians 2. I've been trying to hint at it by being in Ephesians 2. It's pretty clear, right? We were dead in our sins and trespasses. You guys remember that? Okay. But God did what? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. It's true for Ezra as well. That's the only way to be saved. You understand that? The only way for a dead man to come to life is by the work of 
God's Spirit, right? Okay, so I hope you understand that. This is one religion. Like you just tear the little page out between the Old and New Testament and realize people are saved the same way. God is the same God. He works the same way. Now, we're not at the same point in the unfolding plan of redemptive history everywhere in the text, but we have the same God, the same way of saving, the same nature of a covenant. Christ is being offered to you in every covenant in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, um, the announcement of the covenant of grace. Who's on offer? Jesus. In Noah's covenant, ultimately, who's on offer? Jesus. We're looking for the seed of the woman. In Abraham's covenant, who's on offer? Jesus, the son of Abraham. It's going to save the world, bless the... You guys tracking with me? Who's on offer in Moses' covenant? You'll say, the righteousness of Israel. No, Jesus. Why? Tabernacle, sacrificial system, all pointing to Christ. Even the law, the moral law, and the civil laws themselves point to Christ, the second Adam, who will keep them. Who's on offer in the new covenant? Well, if you don't know the answer to that, <laughs> we've got a problem. It's always the same. Um, but we're in different part, points of redemptive history. So, the, good, the Lord's good hand was upon Ezra. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law and to do it and to teach its, his statutes and rules in Israel. Here's what I want you to understand. God gives that thing to Ezra, the grace by which he's this kind of man, and then God rewards him for it. He gives it to him and then rewards him for it. You'll stand before God in heaven and he rewards you and you'll say, uh, you know, essentially nothing in my hand I bring. I've done nothing of, in and of myself. And he's like, oh no, I'm justifying you on the basis of your good works. At, in, in when I say justifying, vindicating you um, and on the basis of is sloppy. So I'll, I'll, I'll change that and say, kata in the Greek, in accord with your good works. Right? These good works that you have, um, they accord with, with true faith. And so you're being justified. You say, but, but they're not from me ultimately. That's right. God gives you to them to you and then he rewards you for them. Right? Um, how it's been since the fall. So the same way he rewards Noah for something he gave Noah. Right? And you'll go, oh, but, you know, not only, you know, as you have not only in my presence, now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is who? God who's at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure right? And then you get rewarded for that, right? Okay. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So I just want to stop there for a second. Again, now ask you a second, another question. You're like, man, we're camping out here a long time because this is important. God is the one doing this work. God is the one whose good hand is upon Ezra. Um, Ezra, though, what's the pattern of his life? What do you see it there? As a leader. So I'm going to say as a priest, he is what comes prior to a pastor. A pastor is not a priest or an elder, what we call an elder now, right? Whether teaching or ruling elder. Um, he's, not, he's not a priest, uh, the, the elders of the New Testament, because we don't need a priest anymore. Um, these guys are types of what's to come in the great high priest Christ. But it's the same basic job here, um, which is to what? What's the order? What does he do first with regard to God's word? It's the first thing he does. What's that? Studies it. Fundamental, right? The fundamental first task of any one of God's um, teachers in the church. He studies he sets his heart to study the law of the Lord. I'm going to ha harp on this because I went around all summer to various places seeing guys preach, um, many of whom I love, who it was clear to me that their hearts are not particularly set on studying 
in many cases. And the reason I say that is because um, they're feeding a shallow diet to their people, not just because they're convinced their people can't handle very much, but because their own study is not going very deep. And so there's not a lot to give. You can't feed people something you haven't eaten, right? Um, pastors set their heart to the study of the law, the Word of God. Um, that's why we, you know, press on languages and, you know, you, and doctrine, how you put this thing together and knowing the Bible. That's why we do that for our missionaries who are going to go out to the field. Your heart is set on studying the Word of God. That is the first and foremost responsibility of anyone who's going to be a minister of Christ and His Word. Their heart is set on studying it. If you're not set on studying the Word, do something else for a living, right? Secondly, what is Ezra's response? What's the second thing he does? Studies it and, what's the second commitment? He does it. Notice he studies it and does it before he teaches it. He doesn't study it and then say, all right, now do as I say, not as I do. Okay? It's not what he does. He does it. I, I emphasize this because the New Testament does as well, doesn't it? What's an elder? An elder is to be able to teach sound doctrine, refute those who contradict. Somebody who's able to unfold for you the whole, the whole counsel of God and... He's to be a man who does it. That's why the character pattern of an elder or deacon is laid out the way it is. He is supposed to be this kind of man, a man walking in accord with God's word. Um, we, have light, we have lowered the bar on that so far, it sometimes can be stunning, right? So that pastors disqualify themselves. They stand up in front of the congregation and say, I've sinned greatly, I've disqualified myself, blah, blah, blah. And the congregation gives them a standing ovation. I just saw one recently. And I'm stunned by that. This man has just scandalized Christ in his church because of his own ungodliness. He's demonstrated to you that for some time he has veered away from studying the law of the Lord and doing it. You say, why do you say for some time? Because a man is not walking in godliness and then just one day wakes up and says, I think I'll be wicked today. Oops, now I'm going to stand before the congregation this Sunday after being wicked. One, you guys follow how that? You, he's degraded for some time. And congregations gave him standing ovations because he's authentic. Like, that is not a virtue. I know in our culture we make authenticity a big virtue. It's not a virtue. Um, in our culture, what it is, it's just called shamelessness. You actually don't mind so much that you're a sinner. So you're just able to bring your junk out in front of everybody um, rather than repent of it, right? You need to be repenting of it, turning from it, saying, I've offended God. It's not just something I carry out and just look at all the stuff I've done. Aren't I amazing? I'm not changing anything. I'm just, but I'm honest about it. Right? That's not virtuous. You know, virtue is to put that thing to death, not just talk about it openly. <laughs> so he goes on. He does it and he does what? Then he, last step, teaches it. Studies, does it, teaches it. That's his heart is set on that. His heart is set on that. Um, that. That order is paramount. All right. Now, I've spent a lot of time there because we have to understand this is the man who's leading them to the rebuilding of the temple and to some degree who's leading them in the rebuilding of the city. You might say, well, isn't Nehemiah? Yes, but he is a wall builder, if you will, but he's actually the cupbearer of the king. Um, but Ezra's the high priest here was essentially leading worship um, reforming the people of God and you're being told he's this kind of man and it's fundamental and the good hand of his God is upon him that's ultimately why he's this kind of man and it's because that he's this kind of man that the good hand of God is upon him so God gives what he commands and then he rewards what he gives make sense okay this is a copy of the, verse 11, of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, a man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. May you notice the emphasis again on what kind of man Ezra is. 
Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. In case you weren't sure what he was about, he just keeps repeating it. Um, Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to you to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and the drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. You shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. I mean, this is incredibly generous on the part of the king. Everything you need for sacrifices, for the rebuilding, for the funding of the house of God so that you might return to worship him. And it's essentially freely given to you without much stipulation other than do it according to the will of your God. Right? And I, as Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, whatever Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt, without prescribing how much. Um, that's a big deal, salt. You know, it gets a major, that's, like, that's it's a hard thing to get a hold of. It's a, it's a major commodity for them. Um, think about all the things they had to use it for. They didn't have refrigerators and freezers and such. Okay. Um, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it should not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple, servants, or other servants of this house of God. Do everything the God of heaven wants done. Do not tax the people who serve in the temple and lead worship. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. And now here comes the response. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. Who put this in the heart of the king? You, li- you listen to this and you think, oh my goodness, this, this is the new covenant promise coming in spades. Here's, here we're getting to rebuild the temple. Everything's coming with this godly man who's leading us. He clearly isn't, though, the king, because he's not from the tribe of Judah. That's being clarified for you. But who put this in the heart of the king? God did. Um, remember, God, the, the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. He turns it where he wills. Right? You're seeing that here. You saw that as well in the exile, didn't you? With Nebuchadnezzar or with Darius under Daniel. Okay? And you're seeing it again. He, in the heart of the king, what did he do? To, put, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. In other words, the reason I get all this goodness is because of God's steadfast love. And before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage. Here we go again. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. What's the emphasis in this passage? Go ahead, Tim. That all this is coming to pass by the gracious gift of God. Yeah, because of his everlasting love toward them. 
right? Um, and you're like, you have the right man to reform the people. A man who knows the law. And he's to point other men. He sets his heart to study the law, to do it, to teach to others. And you have the right man to lead them, um, to reform them, to bring them where they need to be. Now, what you're going to find out is Ezra's reformation um, efforts are um, not as fruitful as one might hope. Right? Now you'll see that later. But let's look at the genealogy. We won't read the whole thing. I just want to pick out something. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of the house who went up with me from Babylonia um, in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Who, by the way, is me? Went up with me. Who's speaking now? Ezra. Okay, I won't read all these names. Drop down to verse 15. I, got, I gathered them to the river that, ter, that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there were there none of the sons of Levi. Why is that a problem? Yeah, yeah, you have to have the sons of Levi there. They haven't come for some reason, right? He reviews that. It's got to get fixed, right? Um, he realizes that. Um, it's just a little clue that there's still a problem here. Just, it's just pointing out, why didn't they come? Right? What's their problem? Right? You're just getting hints that as great as Ezra is, as kind as this king is being, on, because the Lord has been gracious to them and given them all this favor, they're still, they're still not reformed the way they need to be. Right? So it goes on, go down to verse, um, well, no, we'll look at verse 16. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Jorib and Elnathan, who were men of insight. A lot of guys named Elnathan, aren't there? And who were men of insight. It's like in English saying, I sent for John, and for also for John, and then also for John, right? Okay. Um, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the, at the place, Kesaphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of Kesaphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. Now look what you get again. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, kinsmen, 18. And then he's going to go on and uh, mention them. And then 220 temple servants, verse 20, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. So what's, what's happening here is um, in spite of the Levites not coming, they send the guys to go find some. And then again, again, the good hand of God is upon them. And some, we find good ones to come. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. I, I just want you to notice what happens there. Um, what does he say? What, what, he's on a journey. He wants to be safe, but what does he not ask the king for? Protection. Why not? Yeah, I already told the king, God intends good for me. So, so if that's what he intends for us as good, then, then why would I then turn around and go, but by the way, we're not quite sure he'll deliver, so could you give us some protection on the way there, right? Um, he doesn't want to do that. And, and, and the Lord is with him. Um, and they, they don't end up needing it. Um, then he sets apart these guys. Notice verse 24. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, and he lists all them, and then he sets apart quite a bit of um, the, the gold and silver, etc., for utensils. Verse 28, 
And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, with the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of silver, the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahav on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And what? The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. Okay. Um, at, go down to verse 35. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all of Israel. Why 12 bulls for all of Israel? 12 tribes, good. Not, though all of Israel's not there, the tw- tribes aren't all here. Judah and Jerusalem have gone back. You have the, no- the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom, I mean, Judah and, um, has gone back to the southern kingdom, but you don't have the northern kingdom, which is Israel. They don't um, really ever return from the exile. Um, they end up just being called the Samaritans. That's why the gospel is going to go to Jerusalem and Judea, and all Samaria, that's the reunification of Israel promised in the New Covenant, um, and the ends of the earth, the Gentiles. Okay, So go on. Um, they also delivered the king's commission to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people in the house of God. So you're going, man, things are going swimmingly for them. The good hand of God is upon them. They've been given everything they possibly need for the, not only the rebuilding of the temple, but the furnishing of the temple for offering the sacrifices in the temple. They have a good godly priest, high priest to lead them. Um, they have all of the temple servants they need, the Levites. They've been protected on their way there by the good hand of God. Um, everything seems to be go, going swimmingly. We have these little hints that maybe it's not as good as it looks, right, when the Levites don't show up um, initially, etc. But It just seems to be going well. Then you get to chapter 9, and you get another hint that all is not well. So chapter 9 and 10 are actually covering this same thing. In chapter 9 and 10, Ezra is going to repent on behalf of of the Israel's faithlessness. That's a terrible sentence. Of Israel's faithlessness, and a command is issued to purify the people. So look there. After these things have been done... The officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land." And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials, the chief men, has been foremost. Okay. What's the problem? Yeah, so he's just told the Levites, the priests, said they're supposed to be holy to the Lord, separated from the unclean peoples around them. And now he gets the announcement that not only have they not done that, they and their sons have been intermarrying with pagans, and particularly like the main leaders of the group or co- seem to be committed to this. Did you guys pick that up? Okay. Um, why, why is this? I, I, I want to come to this briefly. Ezra's going to repent, and we can look at a bit at that but, and kind of sum up the book of Ezra, but... What does it tell you? What does it tell you about the return? What does it tell you about the return? Um, Following the exact same pattern as the Exodus, intermarriage is a problem then too. Good. So this is supposed to be their second Exodus, and it seems to be following the exact same pattern. You pick up the Exodus language. Remember at the in Ezra one. They're being given all this by foreign kings. You're picking it up again here. They're being given all this by a foreign oppressive king. So it seems to be mirroring the exodus. They're to go to their, their city, to their place, their mountain, 
build their temple and worship God. Um, they're supposed to leave a foreign oppressor and go and worship God. They're being led by this chief priest who's going to lead worship. He seems to be a good man. Um, God's good hand is on them. Even when they're sinful, right, and the Levites aren't showing up, God's good hand is on them. You guys are seeing that? They're being saved from foreign enemies. They're being saved from ambushes, and they don't have a military. They're looking a lot like Israel leaving Egypt headed toward the promised land, don't they? And a lot like Israel once they get to the promised land. And they get to the promised land, and they're there, and all the wicked peoples are around them. And what does God tell them? When you come into the promised land, and you're around all these wicked peoples, what's the one thing you shall not do? Intermarry. 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 Now, is that because God is a racist? An anti-Gentile as opposed to an anti-Semitic. So what's happening there? Yeah, that's exactly right. It doesn't have anything to do with their ethnicity. It has to do with their religion. If you marry their, wife, their foreign women who worship false gods, what are you going to do? Are you going to grow closer to the Lord? No. You're going to probably commit idolatry with them. How do I know it, it isn't just condemning the marrying of any foreign women? Well, let's think about Ruth. Is she a Gentile? Yes, a Moabite. You know what that means, right? That means she's the offspring of, of the nasty behavior between Lot and his daughters. That's pretty bad, a Moabite. Yet she marries, a, she, she marries, I'm not talking about her first husband, but her second husband, a faithful, godly Jewish man in the line of King David in the line of the Messiah in the tribe of Judah because she's a believer. Remember, she covenants with God in Ruth 1. You guys remember that? With Yahweh. Okay, so the problem here is not um, God condemns all intermarriage between ethnic groups. The problem here is God condemns you getting yourself married off to pagans who are going to lead you into false worship. This is a problem that goes all the way back to Genesis 6 when the sons of Seth, I believe, married the daughters of Cain. Um, I think this is a problem throughout Scripture intermarrying with people who don't believe, with pagans. That's the take I take on Genesis 6. If you want to listen to my sermon on that, you can. Um, Some guys don't agree with that view. That's fine. My point is, you're not supposed to marry people who aren't covenant believers, right? You're not supposed to do that. Um, but they did. They did. I would tell this to a Christian man or woman. Don't marry that unbeliever. Don't do that. They're likely to lead you down a bad road. You're probably not going to become more faithful to the Lord. <laughs> it's probably not going to happen, Right? Um, so he goes on look what happens verse 3 as soon as I heard this that being Ezra being the eye as soon as I heard this I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled that sounds terrible by the way could you imagine plucking your hair from your head and your beard I mean, this is a pretty strong reaction, right? Because he recognizes. Yeah, like I, I tell sometimes, you know, you just, just want to just sit there and yank the hair out of your beard because you're so irritated by it. Okay, so he's, he's so appalled by the scene that this is how he reacts. Just like his forebears. Just like his forebears, exactly right. This, guys, this is just Israel coming in on a second exodus and it just seems to be the same mess we had the first time. Came in the land and started marrying the pagan women, and they went into sin and disobedience. Okay, I point this out 
because the Old Testament ends with this new exodus from the exile, this what looks like it's going to be a great restoration event like the first exodus, and it's turning out to be a miserable failure, not on the part of God, he's incredibly kind to them, but on the part of man who just continues to pursue the same wickedness he always has. That's the second to last book of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament, Chronicles, which we'll look at after this, is in, first second Chronicles, one book again, actually in, interestingly ends with the people still in exile. In other words, these two books together are telling you something at the end of the canon of the Old Testament. What are they telling you? Um, what's that? Right, we may be physically in the land again, but God has not established um, with them. They have not been faithful to the covenant. So all, all the new covenant in the full sense really hasn't begun. It's not here. You get semblance of something that looks like it, but it's not here. Um, what's happened to the people here is the same thing that happens um, uh, when we went through Exodus and into Leviticus. I went through Exodus and we with that story, then we came into Leviticus and started talking about people walking in holiness. Russell kept telling my grace group, I think, a fairly good line, right? In Exodus, God is getting the people out of Egypt. In Leviticus, he's getting Egypt out of the people, right? And um, unfortunately, that's never fully completed. Um, and that's the same problem here. The Lord is bringing the people out of Babylon, um, but Babylon remains in the people, right? And Chronicles is basically, these two books together, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles are basically telling you they've never really left the exile. Never really left it. Someone's gonna have to lead them out, right? And the, then the Old Testament goes quiet, and you wait for that one who will lead them out, ultimately. All right, um, so Ezra repents, We'll just kind of look just briefly at that and conclude. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles gather around me, well, faithlessness, sorry, faithlessness of the returned exiles, gather around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, to this day we have been in great guilt. He's, coming, he's bringing you all the way back to the Exodus. And, our iniquities, we, uh, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. In other words, they're still under the utter shame that they were under in the exile. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. This is Exodus language again, isn't it? but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end, with their uncleanness. Guys, he's taking you all the way back to the people on the way to the promised land again. That language. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again 
and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So Ezra's just basically saying, you brought us out in the Exodus, and we went into the land, and we didn't listen to you, and we married the peoples, and we sought their peace rather than dealing with them as you commanded us to do. And we committed idolatry and wickedness. And after all your kindness to us once again, we're doing the same thing again. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, or women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites, and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took an oath, the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithful, faithlessness of the exiles. This is what you see them do, by the way. They, they don't eat or drink anything while they're praying. It's a fasting. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Okay, so... What this is excommunication from the people, right? If you're not going to walk in obedience and covenant faithfulness, then we're going to excommunicate you. Just here's your warning. All right. Um, now there are many that are guilty of intermarriage, marrying foreign women, and he's going to say you've broken faith. You need to confess to the Lord. You need to deal with that. Um, and then he lists all these men who had married foreign women and some of the women um, had even born children. That's how it's going to end. This is a depressing end to this book or this part of the book before you get to the words of Nehemiah. Look at verse 44. All these, you, look, you can see that list of names, all these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. But you guys understand why that would be um, a depressing point in the history of Israel. All right. Um, so thus far, the rebuilding efforts, the second exodus, are not going well. But that's not because God isn't being kind or keeping covenant faithfulness. It's because the people are faithless, disobedient. And yet he keeps hand, stick, you know, putting his hand out to them. Now we're going to read about, um, next week we'll pick up Ezra and the efforts to rebuild the city. Well, let me tell you what it's not about. It's not about how you um, do a church building project, right? And build on faith or something like that. Stupid nonsense, okay? This is about rebuilding the city of God where the people dwell, um, reforming the people, right? More than it is about anything else. Um, okay, let me uh, ask if there are any questions. You guys seeing the story? Consistently the same story. <laughs> um, and it's given for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10 is an example to us. We're not so different from these people. God is good to us all the time, holding out his hand, and we're faithless often. It's only in as so much as he gives us the gift of faith and grows us in godliness that we're different at all. Right? Um, let me pray then. Father, we are thankful for the grace that we have been shown in Christ. We are thankful that you have um, elected us, um, that you have shown us grace and mercy um, that in keeping with your covenant promises in your Son, that your Spirit has not only um, 
united us to Christ so that we're justified, but he has set us apart to godliness and he is at work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. We pray that we would, um, to the degree that we are able, work together with him, that we would exercise the means of grace, that we would be in the word and prayer and with your people growing in godliness for the sake of your name, that we would, by the working of your spirit, be transformed into the image of your son more and more day by day with ever-increasing glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.